John 1, verses 1 through 14. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through him, and apart from him nothing came into being that has come into being. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. There came a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify about the light, so that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but he came to testify about the light. There was the true light which, coming into the world, enlightens every man. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. He came to his own, and those who were his own did not receive him. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we saw his glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. Amen. Thank you, Taku, for reading that. Right from the very beginning of the book of John, John clearly declares who Jesus really is. And today, I want to uh, continue on this theme that I kind of started last April that I'm calling Church Essentials. And I just want to thank Pastor Daimasaki, who was here two weeks ago, because he laid out, again, so many key points of what makes up the church. And it just it was a good reminder for us. So last April, we looked at two aspects of Church Essentials. And uh, the first we called Church Leadership, and the second was Real church membership. So today, uh, sticking with this church essentials, I want to look at what we're going to call real church growth. Now, books and books and books have been written on this, and there have been seminars and conferences by the thousands. But for today, I just want to take one narrative from Scripture, and then from that, draw out some principles that I believe are important in this area. And that narrative is found in John chapter 6. Now, I'm sure some of you might be wondering, what does John 6 have to do with church growth? Well, as we were just talking, John stated his purpose in writing his book. In fact, he uh, reiterates it at the end, John 20, 31, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Okay, so what's the true foundation of church growth? What do we build the church on? Well, we have to go to Matthew 16. And what happened in Matthew 16? Jesus asked his 12 disciples, who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter answered, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. That's the foundation of the church. And Jesus answered him, or Jesus said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. 
And then he said, I also say to you that you are Peter. And if you remember what Pastor Masaki said two weeks ago, and this is in the Greek, that you are Peter, Petros, small rock, the kind of rock you can throw. And upon this rock, and that's a different Greek word. The Greek word is Petra, which means like a boulder or a large mass of rock. And on this rock, your confession, based on God's revelation, I will build my church. And the gates of Hades will not overpower it. That's the foundation for building the church, for growing the church. And that's why John wrote the book of John. So let's look at John 6. And John 6 is a long chapter. It has 71 verses altogether, which means we're going to have to just skim over and summarize most of it. But it begins with a very familiar story, and that's the feeding of the 5,000. It's the only miracle that's recorded in all four Gospels, by the way. And it took place on a remote hillside up from the Sea of Galilee, opposite Capernaum and Nazareth and the other towns where Jesus did a lot of his ministry. And he had been teaching a large crowd of people, and it was getting late, and Jesus didn't want to send them away hungry. The other Gospels specify that he felt compassion for them, and he saw them as sheep without a shepherd. So uh, they brought a boy who had five barley loaves and two fish, and you'll remember that Jesus took them. He looked toward heaven, and he gave thanks, and then broke them into pieces, and miraculously fed 5,000 men. And Matthew points out that there were also women and children there too. So Bible scholars tell us there could have been up to 20,000 people in that crowd. So that was a mass miracle. And as many as 20,000 people experienced it firsthand. They ate food supernaturally created from Jesus' hand. So besides healing many people and teaching like no other teacher or rabbi they had ever heard, he now fed an entire crowd. So we see in verse 14, Therefore, when the people saw the sign which he had performed, and by the way, sign in the NAS has a footnote usually for the word sign, which means an attesting miracle or a miracle that authenticates who he is. People saw the sign which he had performed. They said, this is truly the prophet who is to come into the world. Now, the people knew enough of the Old Testament prophecies to know about the anointed one or the Messiah who has promised to come and save Israel and set her up as first among all the nations. So think about it. For 500 years since returning to their land after the exile in Babylon, They had never been restored to a true kingdom. They'd been under Medo-Persia, they'd been under Greece, and they'd been now under Rome. And they'd had no king in the line of David since Zedekiah, which is before the exile. And some might wonder, well, what about King Herod? Well, King Herod, he wasn't of that line of promise. In fact, his father wasn't even a Jew. And really, he was only a puppet king under Caesar. So you can imagine 500 years is a long time to be under foreign rule. So you can't really blame the Jewish people's eagerness for the Messiah to appear. And then this Jesus of Nazareth comes and teaches, and he does miracles like no prophet in Israel's history had ever done. Jesus said, 
if I had not done among them what no one has done. So, verse 15. So Jesus, perceiving that they were intending to come and take him by force to make him king. Wow, how many politicians could only dream of that happening to them. But how did Jesus respond? And here's the second part of verse 15. He withdrew again to the mountain by himself alone. He walked away. And I'm sure many could not figure that out. And I'm sure many of even of his followers were thinking, what a wasted opportunity. And I think this is worth pointing out. You know, there's no indication here that this was a temptation point for Jesus. But there are some parallels with the temptations that Jesus faced in the 40 days in the wilderness before his ministry started. If you remember this, this is from Matthew 4. The devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And then he said to him, All these things I will give you if you fall down and worship me. It was a shortcut to reclaiming the world. Now this wasn't quite the same scope here, but the people pushing to make him king was essentially presenting him with a shortcut to being recognized now as the Messiah and the King, at least their understanding of the Messiah. It's also worth mentioning, because we're going to come back to this later, but uh, in Jesus' first temptation, he hadn't eaten in 40 days. And if you remember, Satan told him that if he was the Son of God, command that these stones become bread, presumably to provide food for his own immediate needs. But Jesus did not. Look closely. Pay attention to Jesus' answer. If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become bread. Jesus answered, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone. Man shall not live on bread alone. Not the Son of God shall not live on bread alone, but man shall not live on bread alone. But every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Was Jesus the Son of God? Yes, he was. But he became a man in every respect. Except for the fallen sinful nature. He was fully man. He was fully flesh and blood. And he was a man filled with the Holy Spirit. He walked in complete dependency and obedience to his Father. And Pastor Ron's pointed that out more than once, right? Especially in their study of Hebrews, that you know Jesus didn't carry his God card around. Hebrews says he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, and that he has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. So Jesus didn't turn the stones into bread for himself, but he did take five loaves and break them and turn them into enough bread to feed 5,000 people. But at the prospect of being made king at this point, he walked away. So the story continues with the disciples. They went back across the lake. Remember this story? A storm came up. Jesus walked on the water across, met them, and got in the boat and went to the other side with them, calmed the storm. 
Now from there, the other three Gospels go on to other matters, but John follows up this encounter, and it is instructive on so many levels. So that's what we want to look at today. The next day the crowd was searching for him. They went looking all over, and then they realized he'd probably gone back across the Sea of Galilee, so they went after him. And then verse 25 says, When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you get here? We might think that Jesus would be impressed that they came all the way over there looking for him. But Jesus answered them and said, Truly, truly, I say to you, you seek me not because you saw signs, but because you ate of the loaves and were filled. So Jesus, who had compassionately fed them the day before, in truth, drove straight to the heart of the matter. You're seeking the superficial and the temporal, not the spiritual and the eternal. Then verse 27, he says, Do not work for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. If you notice, there's a wonderful free offer in there. But like Nicodemus and the Samaritan woman, they didn't get it. They were stuck in the material mindset. And when you add their legalistic religious system that they'd all been brought up in, it went right over them. And this was made evident even when they wondered what work they had to do. What work do we have to do to do the work of God? And Jesus pointed them to faith in him. This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. So they said to him, What then do you do for a sign so that we may see and believe you? Are you kidding? What happened the day before? They all participated in Jesus feeding 20,000 people. So then they brought up Moses and the manna in the wilderness, probably implying a challenge for him to match a miracle on that scale. So in verse 32 and 33, Jesus said, Truly, truly, I say to you, it is not Moses who has given you bread out of heaven, but it is my Father who gives you the true bread out of heaven. For the bread of God is that which comes down out of heaven and gives life to the world. Well, that sounds good. So in verse 34, they said to him, Lord, always give us this bread. So we think maybe they're coming around. But Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger, and he who believes in me will never thirst. And then showing that he really knew that they weren't really coming around. He spoke truthfully. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. And you know, rather than seeking to understand the meaning of his offer, they started murmuring. So down to verse 41. Therefore the Jews were grumbling about him because he had said, I am the bread that came down out of heaven. They were saying, Is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? 
How does he now say, I have come down out of heaven? This was Jesus' home area. And back in chapter 4, Jesus said that a prophet has no honor in his home area. So those in the crowd who really knew his family just couldn't process this. Isn't it interesting, the day before, they were ready to acknowledge that he was a prophet. He was the prophet. But this was going far beyond that. This was going far beyond what they could accept. But Jesus would not back away from the truth of who he was. In fact, he took it a step further. I am the living bread that came down out of heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread also which I give for the life of the world is my flesh. To those Jews who were still thinking materially, this was unthinkable. This is completely over the top. And they were starting to get openly agitated. So then the Jews began to argue with one another, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in yourselves. Not only would this have been absolutely shocking to those people there, but the drinking of blood was strictly prohibited in the Old Testament of any kind. But Jesus held to the spiritual truth about himself, the truth of why he had been sent. And he said, He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so he who eats me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread which came down out of heaven, not as the fathers ate and died, that's the manna, but he who eats this bread will live forever. These things he said in the synagogue as he taught in Capernaum. Wow. Jesus just violated every principle of the seeker-sensitive and church growth movement. Jesus was not into meeting felt needs. He was holding true to who he was and what he really came to do. They wanted a king who could save Israel. They wanted a king who could save Israel from the Roman occupation, a king who could make Israel great again, a king who could provide free food. But Jesus didn't come to rally large crowds of people. He came to testify to the truth. Jesus said to Pilate, for this reason I was born, and for this reason I came, to testify to the truth. He didn't come to provide food for this temporal life only. He came to provide for eternal life. He didn't come to save the people from Rome. He came to save the people from their sins. He didn't come to save them from political oppression. He came to save them from eternal condemnation. 
He didn't come to restore a national kingdom to Israel. He'll do that when he returns. But he came to bring God's kingdom into the hearts of men. And he didn't come only for Israel's salvation. He came for the salvation of the whole world. His true purpose was orders of magnitude more than those people ever could have imagined. They were absorbed in the here and now, and they were utterly blind to who he really was and why he came. And they sadly walked away. And you know, that's the last we hear of this particular crowd. But it gets worse. Verse 60. Many of his disciples, when they heard this, said, this is a difficult statement. Who can listen to it? Wow. As a result of this, many of his disciples withdrew and were not walking with him anymore. These aren't just part of the crowd. These are those who had actually been following him. When it says they were not walking with him anymore, the Greek means they left and never returned. So then Jesus said to the twelve, you do not want to go away also, do you? So here we are in a single narrative from 20,000 people ready to make him king now to questioning even his 12 disciples if they're still with him. And by now, most of you are probably wondering, this is about church growth? So let's, uh, let's stop here and uh, let's consider five principles. Let's keep in mind that this is not the end of the story. Let's call these uh, principles for true church growth. This is not exhaustive. It's not comprehensive. But it's five things I think we can pull out of this story. Number one. While Jesus obviously cared deeply about people's temporal physical needs, his foremost concern was, and still is, the eternal souls of men. Jesus' purpose on earth was not a feeding program. In fact, he admonished them for only seeking to satisfy their physical appetites. And he pointed them to what their true need was, which was not material. But you know, today, even today, many still come to Jesus for what they can get from him in the here and now. All around the world, popular preachers gather huge crowds, huge crowds, by telling them that Jesus will give them prosperity and health and stuff. The prosperity gospel, it attracts millions and millions of people. And it brings prosperity. It brings prosperity to those who are preaching it. They make millions of dollars, mostly from poor people. They delude them with a false gospel a false gospel which really only offers unredeemed man what he naturally wants, the things of this world. And most of their followers, if you look, most of their followers are still poor and I fear are still lost. And on the other hand, there's many churches and ministries today that focus on helping the poor and homeless and that's admirable and it's right and we should be doing that. We should not be neglecting it. But... We need to be careful because in many cases, 
meeting temporal and physical needs supersedes or replaces meeting spiritual needs. And you end up with a social gospel instead of a soul salvation gospel. The message of repentance and faith and the new spiritual birth can get pushed aside or lost. And we need to remember that in all things we are to seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all the other things will be added. And speaking of kingdom, number two, Jesus did not come to be a political force or to establish an earthly kingdom that will come when he returns. He came to establish the kingdom of God within the hearts of men. And until he returns, his kingdom advances heart by heart through the message of the gospel, and it's displayed in the church, which the church does not grow through political victories. You know, between the fourth and fifth century, after coming through about 300 years of severe persecution in the Roman world, Christianity was made the official religion of the Roman Empire. And church membership grew massively, as you can imagine. But the new birth was no longer the criterion, but affiliation. So the church grew and grew, and it soon became a massive political force in Europe, but void of spiritual life. And for centuries, it was the biggest persecutor of true believers in Europe. That's why there was a Reformation. And that's why we have free churches. Number three, Jesus did not back down on truth or soften his message to make it more acceptable or appealing or to make it easier for people to join him. Jesus' goal was never to build up big numbers of affiliates. And we see examples like it in Luke 14 where it says, large crowds were going along with him And he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not carry his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Compare that to the positive thinking, feel-good prosperity gospel. In the same way, We must never back down on truth or soften his message. It's his message. It's not our message. It's his message. And we can't try to widen the narrow gate to get more people to join us. Because Jesus said, the gate is small, the gate is narrow, and the road is narrow, and few find it. If we try to do that, that is not building the church. The church of Jesus Christ, by definition, is made up of disciples, those who know him and follow him wholeheartedly. Any kind of no repentance or your best life now type of gospel, it'll get more people to join a church organization, but it will not save souls. So growing a big church is not the goal, but genuine discipleship is. Look at verse uh, 68 here. This is back in chapter 6 of John. When Jesus asked the 12 whether they wanted to leave 
Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. They believed in who he was because it had been revealed to them by God the Father. And they left all and followed him because of who he was, Lord and Savior. And then we see down in verse 70, he said, Did I myself not choose you, the twelve? So except for Judas, this is who Jesus would build his church on, no matter how few. So, even when holding on to the truth caused many of his followers to turn away, what did Jesus do? He fully trusted in his Father's sovereignty. He rested in his Father's all-knowing wisdom and righteousness. And so should we. Let's look back at verse 37 to 39. Let's go back into the middle part of the chapter. Jesus said, All that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out. What a great verse. And then down to verse 39. This is the will of him who sent me, that of all that he has given me, I lose nothing, but raise it up on the last day. All he has given me, I lose nothing. Hold on to that. That's a promise. No one will be lost whom the Father has given him. But when the people started grumbling, Jesus clarified, Do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And even when he was talking to those who had left him, who were in the middle of leaving, in verse 64 and 65, he said, There are some of you who do not believe, for Jesus knew from the beginning who they were who did not believe and who it was that would betray him. And he was saying, For this reason I have said to you that no one can come to me unless it has been granted him from the Father. And you remember from Matthew 16, it was the Father who had revealed to the true disciples who Jesus really was. I realize this brings up the old debate, the old controversy over election and free will, but we just have to take Jesus' plain and clear words for what they are and understand that many scriptures underscore God's sovereign election. And also, there are many scriptures that underscore man's responsibility to repent and believe and come to Jesus Christ. It's a wondrous mystery, just like we sang this morning, but we need to hold to the whole counsel of God for what it is. And we leave these mysteries to God's all-knowing and righteous wisdom. Number five, Jesus depended on the Holy Spirit. We saw before he was the Son of God, to be sure, but he was fully man, 
filled with the Holy Spirit, and he lived and walked and taught and did miracles by the power of the Holy Spirit. In John 8, a couple chapters ahead, Jesus told the crowd, he said, I do nothing on my own initiative, but I speak these things as the Father taught me. And we see here also in verse 63, Jesus said, it is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and they are life. So for us, we need to take to heart what Paul wrote to the Corinthian church when he said, my message and my preaching were not in persuasive words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power so that your faith would not rest on the wisdom of men, but on the power of God. And it's always been that way, even back in the Old Testament. In Zechariah 4, 6, not by might, not by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. So this is the end of this narrative, but it's still not the end of the story. Continued to get worse. The same disconnect between Jesus and the crowds that we saw in chapter 6 continues through chapter 7 and chapter 8 with increasing intensity. Rejection was followed by opposition, and opposition was followed by hostility until just before the next Passover, the Jewish leaders had Jesus put to death on a cross. And many people would have thought, what a failure. What a failure. The people rejected him and put him to death. But we know that's still not the end of the story because he came to be rejected and to suffer and to die and to be a sacrifice of atonement for the sins of the world. The world, not just Israel, the world. And to open up the way for men to come to God justified. And he finished that work. He finished it. He completed it. And he was raised to life again in complete victory. And he's given a name that is above every other name and authority that is above every authority in heaven and on earth. He took no shortcut. And because of that, he made possible what his words were. He made it a spiritual reality that we can partake in. Can I just say this? Don't run away from or try to step around the difficult words of Jesus Christ. Believe him, come to him with a whole heart and trust him and you will find that his words are life. They are life in the truest sense. So what about the church? Well, after he rose, Jesus appeared to his disciples and it says that he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and then he gave them the great commission to make disciples in all the world and then he was taken up to heaven. But, and this is key, he told them to wait 
to wait until the Holy Spirit had come. So they waited in Jerusalem and they prayed. Only 120 people out of a whole nation. And then the Holy Spirit came as he promised with the sound of a mighty rushing wind and he filled that small group of people. And God with that sound drew a large crowd and Peter preached to them. He preached truth to them and it culminated with this. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ this Jesus whom you crucified. And what was the response? They were pierced to the heart. Then they knew who he was, and they knew what they had done. Then they got it. And Jesus said when the Holy Spirit came, he would convict the world in regard to sin and righteousness and judgment, and they were convicted. And then they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent, and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And it says, Those who had received his word were baptized, and that day there were added about 3,000 souls. 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 Not a crowd souls. And it says they kept preaching and it says the Lord, the Lord was adding to their numbers day by day those who were being saved. And even when the religious leaders started to push back and persecute them, they held to their message of truth. Acts 4.4 says many of those who had heard the message believed and the number of the men came to be about five thousand. Remember that number? But this was not 5,000 people looking for bread. This was 5,000 disciples. 5,000 souls who knew who Jesus really was. And they came to him as the soul-saving Messiah. And they received the Holy Spirit. As Ezekiel says, they had their heart of stone taken out and were given a heart of flesh. What a far cry from the shallow hopes of that first 5,000 people. The book of Acts goes on. 5.14, and all the more believers in the Lord, multitudes of men and women were constantly added to their number. Chapter 6, verse 7, and the word of God kept on spreading, and the number of the disciples continued to increase greatly in Jerusalem. And listen, a great many of the priests were becoming obedient to the faith. Chapter 9, verse 31. Chapter 12, verse 24. Chapter 16, verse 5. Now, this is the Gentile world. So the churches were being strengthened in the faith and were increasing in number daily. Chapter 19, verse 20, so the word of the Lord was growing mightily and prevailing. This is how true church growth still happens. It's the same word. It's the same truth. It's the same power of the Holy Spirit. It's the same new birth. 
It's the same discipleship. And it's the same promise that Jesus gave. That promise still stands that he will build his church and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. That promise still holds. May we hold on to it and be faithful to it and faithful to his truth in our place and in our time. Father, thank you for your unchanging word. Thank you for the truth that's in it, Lord. You said, Jesus, you said that heaven and earth will pass away, but your words will not pass away. Lord, help us to have ears that hear and eyes that see and hearts that understand to turn and be healed. Lord, don't let us run away from your words. Lord, help us to come to you with a whole heart and trust in you, to trust in your truth, to trust in the power of your word to do your work. Lord, help us to be faithful at planting and watering and trusting you to cause the growth. Thank you for this church body. Pray this in Jesus' strong name. Amen.